I've had a stupid amount of jobs in my life. I've worked fast food, retail. I've been a bartender, a server, a nightclub bouncer. For a time, I built sprinkler boxes and slung packages in warehouses. I tried college right out of high school, but it didn't stick. In fact, one of the classes I teach now, I always begin the semester by telling my students that I failed that very course, composition, twice. It wasn't until my later 20s, after I'd moved up and down the West Coast a dozen times, that I, for lack of a better phrase, got my shit together. I went back to school, passed that class, and then a few more. Now, ten years on from that point in my life, I can't say that I've got it all figured out. Far from it. My list of regrets, mistakes, false starts, and dead ends could fill a notebook. I'm still working through all that. But along the way, I've found two constants. One is teaching. If you would have walked up to me while I was working security outside of a bar and said I'd be fielding questions about how to write a proper thesis or how to analyze the work of Sylvia Plath through a feminist lens, I'd have laughed, told you that your ID was fake, and to hit the road. But here we are. I don't know if I'm any good at it, but I love teaching. I love helping people feel confident in their own writing. I love hearing when students read a story or a poem that changes their outlook on life. I love subverting expectations. Even today, the idea of the English professor brings about images of smoking jackets and bow ties and some stiffness of posture. Instead, I'm chubby, bearded, tattooed, and introducing myself to classes in black metal t-shirts and cut-off jeans. This isn't to say that I'm cool or transcendent or anything like that. Again, far from it. But hopefully it shows that a passion for literature isn't limited to stuffy academics, and that there isn't a right way to be passionate or creative about a subject. Side note, for anyone listening and taking classes in the Georgia system, if you need an English course, look me up. And this brings us to the other constant in my life, writing. Through all the jobs I tried my hand at, in the background was the little voice saying, this is only temporary. You're going to write the next bestseller. That's your destiny. This demon stayed with me in my master's program and into PhD then my success would eventually be measured by total units sold and amount of positive book club reviews. The doctorate program I went through was grueling. Four years of constantly not feeling good enough. It was drilled into our heads that your worth as an academic would be determined by two things, a tenure-track teaching position and a book contract with a, quote, recognized publisher. These are two things I have yet to achieve. But is that such a bad thing? While the program helped me discover a love for teaching, it also broke my will and nearly stamped out my desire to write. Nearly five years after graduating, I get to say, hey, I'm a doctor, and I think my parents are proud of me. But for some time, I thought I'd never write again. Not for the simple pleasure of it. Now, I'm not trying to disparage my alma mater specifically. This is true of most, if not all, programs, and my true feelings about the state of academia in the United States is better left off the record. But this podcast, it started when I was going crazy during lockdown two years ago. It's brought me back to the purity of writing. I'm doing this because I love it, because I want to tell people stories. So what point am I making here? Why am I telling you all of this? Shit, I don't, I don't know. Maybe it's because I sat down to write this intro and had no idea what to say. 
Maybe because this podcast has reignited a fire in me that I thought was lost. Or maybe this is my rambling public service announcement to urge you to never let anything or anyone stand in the way of what you are passionate about. Enough with that. Ladies and gentlemen, the guy who got his PhD and almost lost himself in the process is in. And the haunt is on. Chapter 16 When Marie reached for Austin's hand, he brushed her away and pushed open the double doors. With the pockets of emergency lighting, rather than the starry illumination of the many chandeliers, the formal dining room of the Baroness, with the tables still set for dinners that would never happen, felt hollow, a cold shell. Marie shivered, paused, watching her husband move forward into the space. He wasn't creeping along, hunched like before, but taking bold strides, as if he were no longer concerned about being found. Though she couldn't know for sure, Marie sensed that they were alone, or at least, for the time being, devoid of humanity. They say places, rooms. They keep secrets, remnants of the lives that had passed or coursed through them. The whispers or scars produced by years of emotions— Fighting families, drunk fathers, jealous lovers, the joy and elation of Christmas morning, and the thudding of a murderous heart. The events that transpire, like the ghosts they produce between their walls, linger. The Baroness hadn't been around long enough to receive those scars, to bear witness to the wounds that would ingrain themselves into the intricate mazes of the carpet, the patterning of the lines in the polished wooden banisters, the ornate geometry of the thousand jewels in the snaking, tentacled fixtures latched to the ceiling that were, without fire or filament, dormant, leached of the sparkle that caught Marie's eye the first dinner of their cruise. Marie still hadn't entered the space, as if waiting for some vampiric invitation to proceed, but as Austin reached the first rings of circular tables, he turned around and threw his hands up. What are you doing? G.I. Joe is waiting on us. Marie hesitated, but obliged. She was still tiptoeing, walking in the balls of her feet, though the plush carpet wouldn't do much to announce her presence either way. Again, she was fairly certain they were alone. The kitchen's through there, Austin said, pointing. Okay, Marie said. Well, you go that way, and I'll check out the bar. Meet me back here in ten minutes. Marie retrieved the glorified paperweight of a cell phone and checked the time, nearly 9 p.m., before stashing it in her back pocket again. Austin was already walking away, toward the nearly room-length countertop. There was no waiting to discuss, no asking if she were comfortable going by herself. It wasn't like they were lost in the ocean aboard a ship with a bunch of crazies who were encouraging the passengers to murder one another. Sure, I'll head into a room with knives and glass and propane stoves and a hundred other ways of killing you. Whatever, Marie thought. We could probably get this done faster if we split up. The couple diverged. Marie, still semi-crouching, weaved through the tables. She passed table nine and had the fleeting desire to be taken back to that awkward dinner instead of searching for what they might need to live for more than a few days on a lifeboat. The whole dining room, now free of other laughing and smiling guests, was cavernous. She hadn't ever really been a fan of crowded spaces. 
Concerts, festivals, political events. Something Austin often drug her to on his campus. They all felt overwhelming. Not exactly claustrophobic, but erratic, as if the tide could turn at any moment, and she might be swallowed up by a stampeding public. That first formal dinner was borderline for her, with souvenir cup and sun-drunk cruisers bumping into her while finding her table. But this, being alone save for her husband, this was somehow worse. A different sort of fear, to be sure, like a space that should be packed and isn't, leaves the mind to be populated by the notion of what if, rather than what is. Maybe that was why horror movies always threw characters into abandoned hospitals or elementary schools. On the opposite wall from the massive bar were two pairs of double doors, each with a porthole-style window that provided a view into the darkened kitchen. As soon as Marie put a hand on one door, a thought seized her and she froze. What lay beyond? Are we going to be the ghosts? Maybe they, her and Austin, would be that metaphorical dagger, the serrated blade that would tear open the veil between worlds and create the haunting in the dining room. Maybe everyone on board judging from the screams they'd heard after their psychotic cruise director's announcement, was doing the same. Everyone carving out their own slice of a floating, haunted house, leaving their mark for future explorers to find, whether they be authorities in some Scandinavian shipyard investigating, or rubber-suited divers meandering through the Baroness as she lay somewhere far below the surface of the North Atlantic. Marie was spiraling. Come on, she thought, one thing at a time. And while holding her breath... She pushed through and stepped into an empty, oversized kitchen. The room was nearly as large as the dining room, albeit without the high ceilings. The heavy doors of walk-in coolers stood like sentries at the back, while wire mesh racks, filled with every imaginable box and brand and bottle, populated the left and right walls. Lines of interconnected stainless steel prep tables crisscrossed the space beneath disabled fluorescent tubing and the twisting circuitry of the fire sprinklers. The intercom system sputtered to life. Donnie's voice suddenly chortling out from the speaker over Marie's left shoulder. Tick-tock, he said. Time is wasting. Behind his voice there were screams, both men and women. Anguished, fearful shrieks, like he was broadcasting from a medieval torture chamber. We are getting closer by the minute. I can feel him. His energy. I bet we could go down and switch off every single one of our engines, and we'd still get there right on schedule. Just from his pull his desire to bring us closer. The stark eggshell of the half-light from the emergency lamps cast long shadows up and down the aisles of the kitchen, providing ample room for anyone or anything to hide. Without the carpet, Marie's shoes clicked and squished on the tiled floor. Moving faster now, she marched toward one of the open pantry walls. So, Donnie went on, wherever you are and whoever you're there with, make your choice. Tick-tock. Tick-tock. Marie wanted out of there, out of the kitchen and off the boat. She rummaged through the shelves, pushing gallons of mayonnaise and heavy canvas bags of rice aside, and eventually discovered cans of baked beans and vegetables, anything with sufficient nutrients. She started picking them up one by one, and her left arm already felt the weight. She dropped the cans back on the shelf and spun to search the room. In the corner, near the walk-ins, were a line of metal carts, she hurried over, her footsteps echoing through the kitchen, making sure to keep a wide berth from the larger pools of shadow. She gripped the cool handle of the first cart, but it didn't budge, so she knelt and unlocked the wheels. 
On a ship, most, if not all, items needed the ability to remain stationary. She heard it as she stood up. A tapping. Soft, rhythmic, like Morse code. Something intentional. The woman clutched the cart's handle and searched her immediate vicinity, expecting to find one of Donnie's lunatic followers crouched behind her, a sinister grin and a gleaming chef's knife drumming against the metal of a prep table to get her attention before striking. She pictured him licking his lips. But still, she was alone. Her imagination, God. There was a very real threat on board the Baroness, and here she was jumping at horror movie cliches. The boogeymen here weren't hiding in the shadows. They were out in the open. No, Marie thought. No time for this. Load up the food. Get going. She had bigger things to worry about, like piling into a lifeboat and hoping for an aquatic rescue. But something made her hold her breath and listen. There it was again. Tap, tap, tap. The third time she heard it, she zeroed in on where it was coming from. The walk-in cooler. From ten feet away, she could see the narrow locking pin on the handle was in place, not hanging from a slender chain. Sealed. See? It's locked. There's nothing to worry about. So she started pushing the cart again, when she was struck by another thought. What if someone's in there? Marie waited for another tap, and sure enough, her wish was granted. No way, she thought. There's no way. Why? Well, if they could saw a man in half and encourage widespread murder, killing someone by locking them in a freezer wasn't exactly a stretch. Marie tried pushing the cart, but her body stayed still. What if she got on that lifeboat, her and Austin, and the other couple from Wisconsin? What if they made it back to the stake safely, back to the predictability of their lives? Could she live with herself? Could she live with knowing that she could have saved someone's life and didn't? If ever there was a time to be selfish, to think about herself, her life, over others, this was it. Just get the food onto the cart and back to the lifeboat. But she couldn't. She'd want someone to save her. Marie let go and stepped slowly toward the cooler. Another tap, tap, tap. With two fingers, she plucked out the pin and gripped the latch. There's no one in there, Marie, she thought. If there was, they'd be screaming their heads off or pounding on the door, not acting like some mischievous little spirit. Unless they were frostbitten or broken to the point where that was the most they could muster. With that, she yanked open the heavy door and was blasted by icy air. That was it. No beaten, disheveled body fell on top of her. Besides giant plastic-wrapped seafood and cuts of meat, the dark freezer was empty. Another series of taps. Marie looked above her head to see the open slats of the cooling system, little ribbons blowing. Between the vent and the freezer wall, the pull chain for the single light bulb dangled, the weight at the end spinning in a slow oval from the forced air, like a hypnotist's totem. With the door open, the system was trying to regulate the temperature, and sure enough, with a stronger breeze, the little ball bearing at the end of the chain sounded against the metal wall. Tap. Tap, tap. A wave of relief, and Marie shook her head, clearing it. Get this done, get home. You've got a story to finish. Focus on something simple. A woman returning to her small hometown to take care of an ailing mother, 
not wanting to think about the shattered pieces of her career or marriage, and just getting a reset. Think about that, Marie thought. Think about the jilted divorcee and the rugged firefighter who she ultimately can't resist. This got her moving. Something else to focus on. The cart rattled along the tiled floor, one wheel making intermittent squeals. But Marie was no longer worried about being quiet. She loaded as many cans onto the cart as she could and shoved it toward the same set of double doors. She didn't notice the beady red pinprick of the security camera following her as she pushed through. At first, Marie glossed right over her husband. She'd expected him to have already gotten through the bar and moved on to a maintenance closet or a service station. Asna had said to meet back in ten minutes and the handful of simple clocks in the kitchen told Marie that her side trip to the freezer had made her late. She looked at the two exits, thinking that he'd be there, pacing in front of one, waving at her to hurry up, but Austin wasn't there, either. She shoved the leaden cart halfway through the dining room, the wheel whining as she went, and was only a few feet from her husband when she noticed him. He had blended in with the tall topiary displays between bar stools. Austin sat with his back to her, his head tilted down toward a glass and a bottle of whiskey. Marie said, Austin, damn it! scared me. He didn't stir, and Marie stopped pushing. Hello? Marie said. She maneuvered around the cart. Austin? The man retained his stillness. Okay. Did you find anything? Hey, look at all this food. This'll last us... Marie trailed off. She was behind him now, and could reach out to touch Austin, but something insisted that she shouldn't. As if sensing her closeness, Austin shifted. Not to face her. In the mirror behind the bar, Marie could see him bypass the glass and snatch up the bottle. He swigged from it. Seriously? Marie said. You think that's a good idea right now? Austin chortled. You have a better one? Marie felt rage build within her. This was just like him. Austin was a runner. Whenever life threw something difficult at them... He'd suddenly have a late faculty meeting or some fantasy football draft that he just couldn't get out of. And when the excuses didn't work, or he simply couldn't create a good one, he'd start drinking. Not today, Marie thought. She'd drag him off that fucking stool if she had to. Get up, Austin. Help me move this cart outside. No. We aren't doing this right now. We don't have time for it. Marie moved forward and grabbed his shoulder. When she squeezed, Austin exploded. Whether it was his body or the stool being forced backward, Marie was suddenly falling, landing hard on her spine. She fought to collect the air that had been knocked out of her. Over her gasps, she could hear Austin. Do you know how sick and tired I am of hearing you say that? We aren't doing this. We don't have time. We, we, we. As if we ever actually come to a mutual decision. Marie tried to respond, but between faltering breaths, couldn't. She watched her husband turn around to face her. Austin seized a long wooden pole that was leaning next to an adjacent bar stool, swung it in a semicircle, then caught it with his other hand. We want to have a kid, he said. Marie's eyes darted back and forth, from the object to the long mirrored wall behind him, like she had missed something. We want to have a second kid. Oh, oh, my favorite. We want to live out the rest of our long, miserable lives in Wisconsin so we can be closer to family. 
over the line of multicolored liquor bottles and racks of kaleidoscopic glassware, or an array of generic decorations, all aquatic-themed, the seafood chain restaurant kind, coils of thick braided rope slung over and behind splintered lobster cages, and the cobwebbing of off-white fishing nets. Three pirate tableaus, with their eight-pointed helms hovering above a pair of intersecting oars, except the centerpiece was missing one half of the crossbones. Marie was able to muster, I thought you wanted that too. Are you kidding me? I hate Wisconsin. Almost as much as I hate your family. As he began toward her, Austin slapped the flat end of the oar into his palm, like a cleanup batter waiting outside the dugout. What about yours? Marie stammered. She began crab-walking backward, trying to put distance between them. Her mind wasn't processing what was happening. Not really. Instead, she was mentally berating herself for not seeing the foreshadowing. She was a fiction writer, for God's sake. She'd always prided herself on taking in all of the details, both on the page and in reality. Predicting the killer, based on a fleeting glimpse of a candlestick or a fire axe. How had she not noticed Chekhov's or... Yeah, you're right. I fucking hate my family, too. You know how often I fantasize about just leaving all of you? Taking as much of our shitty savings as I can and disappearing? Who are you right now? Marie asked. She was getting to her feet, using the metal cart as leverage. Austin was closing the gap. What? Speaking my mind? He twirled the oar. I don't know. Maybe it's the ocean air or Donnie's water god. Someone or something's giving me strength. I I can't believe this, Marie said. This has to be some kind of sick joke. Her half-drunk husband channeling his best Jack Torrance impression. As if that was how he could process this whole experience. Mimicking a baby voice, Austin asked, Oh no, are we having some regrets about taking this vacation? Marie was retreating. For every step Austin took toward her, she took one back. She said, What are you talking about? You were the one who decided to go on this fucking cruise. There was no we about it. Yeah, yeah, that's true, Austin said, laughing. And it was the best goddamn decision we ever made. This is the escape. This is what I've been waiting for. The couple was rounding one table, then another. Every few feet, Marie's hip or heel would bump into a chair. You don't really believe what that asshole is saying, do you? Maybe I do, maybe I don't. I'd call either avenue a win-win for me. Let's say he's right. There's some ancient underwater flying octopus god. If I kill you, then I will be on his good side. Austin, what are you saying? Or, Austin said, Donnie's full of shit. They all are. Well, then you were killed by a bunch of weirdos or terrorists or whatever the media wants them to be. Your body gets thrown over the side and never recovered. Or... I bet we could just leave it right here on the carpet. Doesn't matter. I'll play the role of the grieving husband and be free. He was getting closer. Marie yanked a chair down between them. And then I can sell the rights to my story. The kids are almost out of the house. I'll be free and rich. You don't mean it, Marie said. You can't. This is insane. Marie didn't see him ready the oar, but it was suddenly swinging at her before she had time to move. Luckily, the overturned chair between them put her just out of reach. Still, she felt the air rush across her face. What are you doing? Marie said. Her voice began to quiver. Sliding the chair aside with one foot, Austin said, No, 
Insanity is expecting different results. Playing the game, checking the boxes, and then you wake up one morning, 40 years old, and you want to kill yourself. Or your wife. Just to break away. Half of Marie's spinning consciousness was telling her to run, to stop inching backward and flee, while the other side was still trying to rationalize, to figure out if Austin's mind really was broken. And look what happened, Austin was saying. Fate intervened. I got an email. At first, I thought it was spam. Somewhere buried between the local singles and enlargement pills. You have been chosen, it said. And I'm not stupid enough to think this was a personalized message. But I clicked on it. I was drawn to it. You need to run. You need to get away from him. Marie's mind was screaming at her to move faster, to turn around and sprint outside. Yet she continued to creep, one foot behind the other, losing ground. You see, I could have deleted it like the rest of the junk. But no, I took a chance. I broke out of that broken record we called a life. Austin swung again, and this time Marie sucked in, hopped back. The oar clicked against the buttons of her blouse. She yelled for him to stop. But what possessed me to click on that email? Austin asked. Boredom? Luck? Or was this water deity calling to me? Another swing. Each of them had been slow enough for her to avoid. He's toying with me, Marie thought. Then, no. This was her husband of 20 years. This doesn't just happen. We aren't in a movie. She needed to snap him out of it. So she changed her tone. Austin, babe, come on. Let's just calm down. This has been enough to drive anyone nuts. Let's put the oar down. Help me get the cart out to the lifeboat. Once we get back to we, Austin roared, we aren't going anywhere. The arc of the oar came from the left this time, and the flat, planed edge connected with Marie's temple. Everything fell silent until her ears rung. Vision was painted white. The woman stumbled, but remained upright. He hit me. He hit me. Oh my God, he hit me. The words spun in her mind like a mantra. The pain of the blow was beginning to set in when a second came, to the other side of her face. This time, her balance was gone, and she toppled into one of the circular tables. She felt the pricks of forks and knives under her flailing body. Hot blood filled her mouth. Teeth felt loose. Murray clutched at the tablecloth, and as she rolled off the tabletop, plates, glasses, flatware, the majority of eight place settings crashed down on top of her. She barely had time to feel the sting of broken glass and the sharp points again before the oar came down onto her lower leg. Something snapped. The pulsing flood of pain coursed through her. Gone were the thoughts of rationalizing, of getting through to her husband. Marie felt trapped, cornered, an animal. Her only directive was to survive. With her good leg, she started kicking, wildly, until she felt Austin's shin. He howled, and Marie braced herself for another blow from the oar, but instead the heft of his body crushed hers. The wind was once again sucked from her lungs. She felt Austin's hands moving up her body, digits gouging skin, and then they were wrapped around her neck. She'd been gasping for air, but now the choke gasps were cut off completely. Marie was immobilized, pressed beneath Austin's weight, head smashed into the glass-sprinkled carpet by the force of her husband's strangling fingers. 
The one arm not pinned to her side was thrashing through the debris she'd brought down from the table, finding only innocuous pieces of glass, nothing substantial. Marie's strained heartbeat pounded in her head, growing more insistent with each second. Unconsciousness loomed. Her husband's face was a mask of rage. Eyes pinpricks. Saliva slid from his lips. She could smell the booze. A low growl flowed from him, vibrating up his throat and through his stiffened arms. This is it, Murray thought. I'll never see my kids again. I'll never see them graduate. Never see them get married. I'll never see my mom again. I'll never see anything again. And as she was about to slip under, to stop squirming under the man she once loved, her hand, now stretched far above her head, felt it. A plate, heavy and thick, like a serving platter. With the last of her strength, Marie gripped the rim and heaved it forward. The weight of the dish disappeared as it exploded over Austin's skull. A single shard was left in her palm. Fingers loosened, grip undone. Austin rolled off of Marie and was silent next to her. Side by side, Marie felt the pressure of his shoulder against hers, like they were back in the queen bed they shared in Wisconsin. The woman fought to sit up, thinking only of putting space between her and her husband, rather than the many questions that would be coming. Finally, she was able to get a hand under herself. In the distance, she heard a door opening, and saw four shapes entering the room. She tried to call out, not caring if they were friendly or one of Donnie's men, but just wanting to get away. Nothing came. Then, she felt Austin stir, and fingers were gripping her neck once again. Marie? A voice called. A woman. Are you in here? Hazy, like she were dreaming, Marie thought, Who is that? I know that voice. There were footsteps rushing toward her, and Marie was suddenly aware of how hard she'd been gripping the shard of plate. It was digging into her skin. The survival part of her brain took over once more, and Marie jabbed. The jagged edge sunk into the soft flesh of Austin's throat. Where are you? The voice called again. Warmth spilled over Marie's hand and wrist. Austin let go. The footsteps stopped. Oh my god, the voice said. And when Marie turned, she saw it had come from Carolyn, the librarian. She stood rigid, with Teresa next to her clutching her arm. Behind them, their partners stood, mouths open. Marie's own partner lay bleeding next to her. What? Teresa muttered. What happened? Marie found her words again. I just killed my husband. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Ghost Modernist. If you haven't already, uh, please follow me on Instagram at The Ghost Modernist for updates. And I hate having to ask because it feels like such shameless self-promotion, but reviews either make or break podcasts. Even writing a few words on Apple Podcasts, and it doesn't matter what you say, helps get this show into the suggestion area for new listeners. So if you haven't yet, please head over to Apple Podcasts and write something and help me scare a few more folks. The theme music for today's episode of The Ghost Modernist was provided by Atrium Carcheri. As always, remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?